0: to More Pages, a podcast where two girls compete to see who will read the most pages and talk about all things book-related along the way. I am, as ever, Sarah. And I'm Faith. And tell us what the vibes are like today, Faith. The vibes today are
1: spicy. They are <gasps> controversial vibes today.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Should we just dive right into why they're spicy and controversial? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so... I just want to preface this by saying we're doing great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're happy we are a happy couple everything is fine however
0: however there's drama however there is there's drama in the pod house yeah but podcast related drama is that what we can call our apartment together the pod house the pod house like the hype house like how the kids have the hype yeah house. Like how they have and then this would just be like an old an old house where we massage each other's backs and (laughs) deal with each other's various ailments because we're old and we do podcasting instead of TikTok. Yeah. It also sounds vaguely futuristic. Like, oh yeah, come back to my pod house. Yeah. Like it's just a little house that's a pod like on the moon or whatever. Yeah. Or on Mars. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to delve further into that, though it is an enticing line of inquiry. You're right. But let's go straight into the controversy. All
1: right. Let's dive into it. What was it? Yesterday? Did this all happen?
0: No, the day before.
1: The day before. It was on the weekend. Sunday.
0: Having a lovely Sunday.
1: Having a lovely Sunday. A day...
0: Picturesque.
1: A day that should have been for rest, but was instead for 22 people breaking my heart. Let's just say. <laughs> and so here's what happened. Let me lay it down. We went to Chapters. Which is uh, the Canadian equivalent to Barnes & Noble. Yes. For our or portion of stone. American listeners. Yes. And we picked up a couple books. As we do when you are going book shopping. And one of the books that I picked up was Cook This Book by Molly Baz. It is a cookbook that focuses a lot on techniques. If you are interested in cooking and you're interested in cookbooks, little plug, this is a good one. I'm sure you've seen it on Instagram. Everyone and their great great grandmother is picking up this cookbook. But I asked, innocently, as I started flipping through this cookbook, whether I could count this towards the more pages goal. And my thought was when i read a cookbook i'm reading all the pages so to me these counted as pages you had a different opinion
0: well i don't think i had a different opinion from what you just outlined because i maintain that if you're fully reading the cookbook you know reading all the little stories fully reading the recipe etc then fine you should count that as pages but my experience with cookbooks is that people don't read them that way they just skim through them they look at the picture and then if they really you know, if they decide that they want to make something, then they will make the meal. And when they're making it, they're, that's when they're reading it carefully. And so what I said was, it only counts as reading if you're actually making the meal. Otherwise, you're just skimming, and skimming doesn't count as reading. But if you're reading it, you know, in detail, that's fine. And then you and I kind of discussed, and you said, well, I read all the little the mm-hmm. little stories that the author puts. I read the introduction. I read all this you know, marginalia that's associated with cookbooks in addition to the recipe. Like, I'm not just skimming. And I was like, okay, if that's the case, Mm -hmm. then fine. You can count it as pages. But, you know, you need to be sure that that's what you're doing. Because if you're just skimming... No, I don't think it should count. You know what? And that is fair. So what we did, like
1: any sane millennials, we took this to Instagram. Of course. Well, you took it to Instagram. I took it to Instagram. Sorry. I don't mean
0: to lump you into this. I'm the pacifist here. You're the... You know, the inflammatory... I'm this controversial podcast host. Yeah,
1: I was ready to confront this head on. I needed data to bring into this podcast because I really thought I was going to win out this. And as it turned out, I did not. I took us to Instagram, asked my followers, does this count as a book? Do you consider a cookbook to be a book? And well,
0: I think it's important to say the exact question that you asked because there's a lot of nuance here. And I think the question that you asked Instagram was a little bit different than what we were discussing, which is fine, but I think it's worth reading
1: verbatim. So I said to my Instagram followers, need to settle a podcast debate, do cookbooks count as books?
0: Do cookbooks count as books? So that's an interesting question and I thought that we could use it as a jumping off point to have some discussions that haven't had in the online book community about different kinds of reading. Um, but before we get there, finish the story. So you asked the question, and what happened?
1: And I was let down, suffice it to say. 65% of people who answered the poll said no, and 35% of people who answered the poll said yes.
0: So yes. Including some alleged friends of yours. And Yeah,
1: I thought I had some really good friends, and then <laughs> the results came back and they had voted no. And I will no longer be speaking to them. If you are someone who voted no on that poll, and you are listening to this podcast... Just know you are dead to me, and
0: that's all there is to it. (laughs) So, no, this is interesting. Obviously, we're joking, and I think it's fine to count the cookbook pages, but I think it's an interesting jumping-off point. So why do you think so many people said no? Because even though I technically agree with them, the fact that there was such an overwhelming no to the question, are cookbooks books, I think is... Interesting, and I might not actually agree with that. I, I think that cookbooks count as books because the author put effort into writing them and testing the recipes, figuring out how they were going to write out the instructions. All of this stuff counts as writing a book, so I think that the result, therefore, is a book. Um, but what do you think people might have been thinking when they so overwhelmingly voted no? I have many
1: thoughts about this. Tell and me. And my main thought about this is... I think the way that we have sought out recipes since the invention of the cookbook obviously has fundamentally changed. People are not picking up cookbooks to find recipes. They're going online. And the thing about online recipes is for search engine optimization reasons, there's an entire novel that you have to read or scroll by before you can get to the actual recipe.
0: So what what you're saying is that in order to appear higher in the search engine results, there are what, keywords that are used in those little stories that come before the recipe? Yeah, and also that's like an advertising space.
1: I mean, there's a reason why bloggers who are primarily food bloggers include such lengthy text. I know it's like a funny joke online to talk about how everyone hates that, and I also click the jump to recipe button if it's available or scroll past it. But ultimately, we've expected recipes to be free because of this method. Those blocks of text are filled with advertisements that make that free. And in order to generate lots of views for those advertisements, even if you're just scrolling past it, they need to fill that kind of content with related keywords, stories, actual text, so Google doesn't think that they're just like a spam website full of links. And that way they get higher on the search engine for Google. So when you Google, for example, beef and broccoli recipe, they're duking it out for who can be the top spot. And that's why.
0: We just incidentally had beef and broccoli for dinner.
1: It was delicious. That was why it was the first recipe to come to my brain. But anyway, because of this different way that we look at recipes now, I think that people, when they think about cookbooks, just think about the recipes. And that's always what cookbooks really have been, is just a collection of recipes. But I think if you pick up a cookbook, it's mostly, at least the large ones, the ones that I typically read, like the most popular ones, it's mostly... I would say 75% recipes, but also like 25% just like autobiographical content. Someone is telling you about their life. They're telling you like a sentimental story about the time that they ate this food or why they started cooking this food this way. And when I brought this to Instagram, I got a bunch of messages back from people. Some in support, some disagreeing.
0: Interesting.
1: And one of them I will read out because I think it really summarized a lot of how I was feeling about this. In an eloquent way. So this is from my friend Hannah, who says...
0: You're naming her on the pod? I am gonna. Shout out to Hannah. Shout
1: out to Hannah, A, for agreeing with me, B, for this comment, which says, I feel like the people who don't agree are the people who are just about the recipe, though, which if that's all you take in, then I wouldn't count that as reading a book either. Which is, I think we're all in
0: agreement with that. Not that the recipe isn't valuable, but again, I think you're very much skimming. You're not, you're reading it so quickly as to not take it in. Like, for example, sometimes the way that I measure whether I can, whether I have read something really is to close the book and ask myself if I can summarize, you know, the last page or the last paragraph that I read. And if I were to skim a recipe and then close the book... I don't think I could tell you even in broad strokes what the steps in the recipe were. I mean, I am a terrible cook. <laughs> so that is one thing, but you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think you need to be you need to retain some amount of the information in order for it to count as reading. Mm-hmm. And if that's not how you're digesting a cookbook, I think that's totally fine. But then it just becomes a question of can it count towards your pages goal? I don't think so, but if you're reading all that autobiographical information, if you're reading the recipe carefully, if you're cooking through the recipe, then I definitely think it should count. See, it's funny that you say
1: that when you cook through the recipe because I most closely read a recipe before I make it. When I'm making something, I'm barely glancing at a recipe. Interesting. Yeah. So you read it closely to see if, what, is something you're interested in, or... Well, to know the if steps. it will be tasty. To know the steps, to know if I know the techniques required, to know if I have everything that I need in enough quantities. And it is a recommended thing when you're cooking to really closely read the recipe before you start cooking.
0: That's probably why when you cook, it goes so well. Whereas when I cook, I'm like, hang on, what is this? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have this. I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. There is the famous instance where um, the recipe that I was using told me to whip until stiff peaks. And it was obviously omitting words because it was kind of a bullet point. What it was saying was, you know, whip the cream until there are stiff peaks. But because it said whip until stiff peaks, I was like, what is the stiff and when will it peak? <laughs> and how will I know? Aww. So that was very confusing for me. But if I'd read it closely beforehand, mm-hmm. I might have been able to figure out what it was saying. Mm-hmm. Or not. I'm not very bright. But... You very bright. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think that does actually make a lot of sense. And as someone who is not too much of a cook myself, hadn't considered that, so I think that's very fair. Mm-hmm. Have you read the cookbook? I have read uh, I read the
1: introduction and the first part of the cookbook, which explains some tips and tricks on how to prep your kitchen to cook, different utensils and pots and pans and things that you absolutely need to actually cook through the cookbook. Uh, so for example, I know there are a bunch of recipes I won't be able to do because I don't have a Dutch oven, which It's the main of my existence. I want a Dutch oven so bad, but they're so expensive. And there's There's a few other things I don't have as well. But I read that
0: part, but I haven't fully read through the rest of... I've flipped through the recipes, but I wouldn't say that I've read the rest of the book yet. So have you added those first few pages that you've read to your pages goal? I have not. Okay, well, I think you should. So you can, when we get to that part, maybe you can just add it roughly to yours. I will say, full disclosure, that I have been taking a course... Um, on the side of my my job and I have been reading a textbook as part of that course and I apply a similar test which is if I were just to skim the textbook I wouldn't count that as reading but because I've been closely reading it and taking notes I get to add roughly 70 pages to my pages goal so I think it's only fair that you get to add the cookbook as well. There we go. Well, that's very interesting. I would be curious to hear if anybody out there has opinions on what counts as reading to you. I I will say we're treating this pretty lightly. I hope that's been evident. We just want to have a bit of a discussion. I think this is interesting. I think it's interesting to talk about what preconceived notions people bring to reading. So let us know at more pages on Instagram if you have any opinions. I would love to hear about them, but without further ado, I think we can dive into what we've been reading. Faith, do you want to go first? What have you been reading lately since we last did our January wrap-up?
1: I had a pretty successful February in terms of what I read. Good for you. And I currently have like six books from the library on the go right now, so that's a little chaotic. It's so hectic the way you do that. Well I I took two. I can't be stopped.
0: (laughs) I took two books out from the library today and I felt stressed by it because now I have to pick which one I'm going to read first.
1: And you know what? That's a sane thing to do. (laughs) I'm not saying that what I do is sane by any means. All right. So the first book that I read since we last spoke for a million years, and I was actually reading this while we recorded that episode of the podcast, was The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Right. Which is a very popular book. You may have heard of it. So it's a little indie title.
0: Matt Hag is a bit of a haig. Matt Haig is a bit of an internet darling as well, I would say. He is. He's active online. He's a prominent mental health advocate. Yes. So how was his book? It was good. I
1: really enjoyed it. It was very... I mean, the thing that is top of the list in how Storygraph summarizes this book is reflective, and I think that's really accurate. It really made me think a lot. If you don't know or you haven't heard of this book, it's about a woman who, trigger warning, there's some dark content in here, she attempts to take her own life and she wakes up in the Midnight Library, which is just a big library that is staffed by her elementary school librarian. And in this library, every shelf is filled to the brim with books, and every book is a potential departure from how her life went. So every regret that she has ever had, whether it's that she regrets she didn't turn left at a stoplight or she regrets that she didn't continue with a relationship, she can see what happens if she had made a different choice and she plops right into that life and continues living it. And it was really interesting. As I was reading it, I was kind of thinking like, oh, what would my life look like if it was a little bit different? And I think this character was really consumed by a lot of regrets in her life, but it was just really interesting to think about life in that way. And the way that every choice leads you to a different place in your
0: life. It's one of those books that plays out a thought experiment in the same way that Ring by Andre Alexis, which we talked about in the last episode, is a thought experiment. And I think that books like that can be really strong or not so much, depending on how they're executed. So would you say that this one was executed well in your opinion yeah i really think so i was really worried at a
1: certain point that it was going to go in a weird direction which is just that like actually this woman just needed to have a husband and a child and i was like oh no i don't like that at all yeah we don't like that Um, but without giving too much away it did not go in that direction and it was actually left pretty ambiguous and it was i i think it did a really effective job at getting to the heart of that even if there are things that you regret in your life or things aren't necessarily going the way that you want them to, that can change and, and you can take agency and change that in your life. And also that your life, your existence is valuable in other people's lives as well. And I thought that was really an interesting and admirable feat
0: to do in a book like that. Yeah, sounds like a book that was making out to deliver a strong message and it did which is yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It it sounds like it accomplished what it set out to do. Yeah. And I like what you said about the fact that your life has meaning in other people's lives. So even mm-hmm. if you're consumed by regrets about how your own life's path has gone, your life has touched other people's lives in mm-hmm. certain ways that you might not even know about and those are just as important and you can never regret those because you don't know how they affected the other yeah exactly very cool Mm -hmm. should i go next yeah the first book that i read in february actually this is the only book i read in february so i finished january on a high i'd read seven books and then february slowed way down for me which which happens for me i tend to read a lot for a while and then kind of drop off but i did read a book called brilliant green by stefano mancuso so some people out there listening may know that other than reading i also love plants it's my other main hobby and interest and i've never really read a book about plants i mostly just noodle with them myself and try to figure things out as i go along based on experience but i thought it'd be interesting to read a book about Plants that was nonfiction. So Brilliant Green basically is, I would describe it as like a defense of intelligence of plants. Um, so Stefano Mancuso is an Italian uh, botanist. He is a professor of agriculture, food, environment, and forestry at the University of Florence. He's the director of the International Laboratory of Plant Neurobiology. This is all just coming from Wikipedia. So he's very interested in plant physiology and what he calls plant intelligence. So this book was first examining and proposing that plants have five senses, the same five senses that we do, as well as additional senses and so the book provided evidence for that and then went into plant intelligence so the way that plants make decisions and the book is arguing that plants do in fact make decisions and that plants are intelligent even if their intelligence looks very different from ours if you're not interested in plants you might not want to read it but If you are interested in plants, I don't know that this would necessarily be one I would recommend. I think that the tone was extremely defensive for some reason. It was like he was trying to convince me to care about plants. And I was like, I picked this book up because I'm interested in plants. Like you've already got me. You don't don't need to start from this very defensive position. And I also felt like sometimes he was stating facts in a way to make them Sound really cool, and I was like, "You don't need to fool me. Like, you don't need to try and write this in a way that is like super spectacular. I already think plants are spectacular. Yeah, you, you just, already bought in. You can just tell me information, and I'll think it's interesting." So one example of the defensive tone uh, of the book is the book is arguing that so the book often compares plants to animals and talks about the way in which we automatically assume that the way an animal's physiology is structured is superior to plants, but that that just comes from the fact that we're animals. And so we have this bias, which I think is a fair point. But again, it's just a unnecessarily defensive tone. So um, the book says that plants have a modular organization. So if you've ever had any plants at home, you may know that it's possible to grow a plant from multiple parts of a plant. Sometimes you can slip off a leaf and grow a plant from that. You can grow another plant from roots, the same roots of that original plant. So the plant is modular because if one part of the plant dies, the rest of the plant can live and that's a survival mechanism essentially that that the plant has. That's what the book is explaining. So it says, the first advantage of having a modular organization, to give just one example, is that for a plant, being eaten isn't that big a deal! Exclamation mark. Could any animal say that? And I was like, I mean, no, but again, why are we being so (laughs) argumentative about this? And then I'll just pull one more to kind of show how the book was trying to make these facts seem exciting when I kind of think that the facts should be able to stand on their own you shouldn't have to feel like you need to dress them up to make them interesting to the average reader because again I think if somebody is picking this book up they're all they already find plants cool and you don't need to like it felt like I was a child that was being convinced to not rip up grass or something by a parent it's <laughs> like no but I promise plants are really cool like they can do all these cool things So there's one theory that the author posits half jokingly that, you know, plants have uh, so many capabilities that they've adapted in order to have symbiotic relationships with animals. And he sort of half jokingly says, do we know for sure that plants haven't developed flowers and smells that appeal to humans to convince us to keep them alive in our homes? You know, why haven't we considered that? Which is certainly an interesting idea, and he says, plants certainly have great manipulative capacities. At this point, could anyone doubt it? Which I just think is an odd structure of a sentence. It's just a weirdly combative way to put it. Mm-hmm. I will say I'm not sure if this book I believe it was translated from Italian so there could be something going on there with the translation but I just thought that it was a bit of a weird reading experience and at the end of it I didn't learn that much about plants that I didn't already know which is kind of what I wanted like I just wanted an accessible entertaining non-fiction book that would teach me a lot of new things about plants that wasn't like a a botany textbook. Yeah. So... I wouldn't necessarily recommend this one. It did have some interesting ideas, and it wasn't too long. Maybe it'll sit well with other readers. Again, it's Brilliant Green, The Surprising History and Science of Plant Intelligence by Stefano Mancuso, and it's translated by Alessandra Viola. And funnily enough, it has a foreword by someone called Michael Pollan, which I think is funny. (laughs) Um, So you could give it a try. For me, it wasn't certainly my favorite nonfiction that I've read this year, and I don't know if it's exactly what I was looking for. That's fair. What did you read next?
1: Next I read The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Woo, 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 Which came highly recommended by you. I'm such a cheerleader for this book. Yeah. It was good. I really enjoyed it. So if you don't know about this book, you may be living under a rock. This is very popular. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so The Mothers follows three characters, Luke, Nadia, and Aubrey, through basically a very complex and like interwoven decade where first Luke and Nadia are together and they have a very complicated kind of secret relationship. And then they break up, Nadia goes away to college, but right before she goes away to college, she and Aubrey become close friends. They remain close friends throughout this decade. And when Nadia goes away to college, uh, Luke and Aubrey develop a friendship and then later develop a relationship and then they get married. And it kind of follows that dynamic through the plot. And it's also told through kind of like this omniscient, ever-present group of the mothers who are the community elders, essentially, a group of senior women who are a big part of the community, particularly the church. And I think that lended a really interesting part to it. Like, I always really looked forward to the beginning of every chapter where there was a few paragraphs before it really got back into the plot, where it was the mothers talking about how we should have seen this coming. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but it was very interesting to have that kind of third
0: almost point of view within the book. And and commentary on the action of the plot. It's a little bit like a Greek chorus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. which was a cool That's a good way to put it, conceit. But it it never felt gimmicky to me. No. Yeah. Which was really nice. Um it, in that way it kind of reminds me of Carmen Maria Machado's work because mm-hmm. she often will use literary tropes in a way that could very easily be seen as pretentious or off putting, but her books have very wide appeal and so does Britt Bennett's. She also recently came out with The Vanishing Half, which was very popular as well. Uh, And I think if anybody has read The Vanishing Half and they want more Britt Bennett, they should definitely read The Mothers, because it does not disappoint.
1: Yeah, and I will say, I am currently reading The Vanishing Half right now. It's one of the six books I have on the go, and (laughs) I finished The Mothers and immediately put The Vanishing Half on hold at the library. I was very impressed with the writing in
0: The Mothers, and so I was really interested to see what else Britt Bennett had done. And I know that you are a plot reader primarily. You love mm-hmm. a good plot. My recollection of The Mothers, I read it in like 2016, but my recollection is that it's very character driven and that you really get to care about these characters. Was that your experience? Did you think the plot was good? I also thought the plot was very strong, but what was driving you through the book?
1: I think it was, I mean, it was definitely really character driven, but it was like the plot around the relationships in the book and... You know, every time something happened, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, what is this person going to think about this? Oh my gosh, how is that person going to react to this? Yeah, because they're
0: such round characters. You really
1: feel like you know them. That's exactly right. Like, I really, you really feel like you are part of that community when you're reading that book. It sucked me in. It was hard to put that book down while I was reading it.
0: Yeah, I remember I devoured that book in like two days. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable. I really enjoyed it as well. So definitely recommend it. Mm -hmm. the next book I read is called A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk and I think it is entirely fair and not at all gratuitous to describe this as a book that people who have read gay Harry Potter fanfiction would enjoy I think that's the exact if very specific demographic that this author was trying to hit I think she was trying to give uh people who have enjoyed that kind of writing a published work in a universe that is not Hogwarts to enjoy. And I'll give a little summary to back up why I think this. So A Marvelous Light is about two men who are living in turn of the 20th century England. It's pre-World War I. The first person is Sir Robert Blythe who goes by Robin. At the start of the book his parents have recently passed away and he's left with an estate that has been mismanaged and he needs money so he has to get a job at the with the English Civil Service And he gets a job posting that he doesn't really understand. He doesn't know what it's going to be. And when he shows up to the first day on the job, he realizes that what the job entails is liaising with Britain's magical assembly. So he learns that there are magicians in Britain and that they also have a government and his job is going to be to liaise with them. And moreover, The job is open because the last magical liaison is missing. Mm. So he meets Edwin Corsi, who is a young aristocratic magician. And uh, immediately these two men, you know, are going to be our romantic leads. So immediately they're interested in each other. Physically, if not uh, emotionally, they really rub each other the wrong way. No pun intended. When they first meet... Enemies to lovers. (laughs) It's an enemies to lovers story. Um, They're begrudgingly on each other's side because Robin needs this job and Edwin needs to find out what has happened to the last magical liaison. So they embark upon this mystery together. To try and find out what happened to Reginald, who is the uh, previous magical liaison, and um, through this, um, both Robin and Edwin discover a larger plot that exists within the magical community. The story takes us to Edwin's estate, uh, his familial estate, which is called Penhelic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And as and he invites Robin to come along with him because of plot reasons that I won't divulge. But as they are spending time together at Edwin's family estate, they start to have feelings for one another and the plot thickens and they both are plunged into more and more danger and then plot things happen basically for the rest of the book. But in this book, these two romantic leads do admit their feelings for each other And there are a few very robust sex scenes, so I do think that it's fair to say that it's for people who enjoyed Harry Potter, enjoyed (laughs) shipping male characters from Harry Potter when they were young, and would like to read a mature version of that with some gay sex. So that's the summary. Is that, do you think, fair? I think so. I mean,
1: that's the client and sinker. You got the folks into it.
0: I think so, right? And so if you're hearing that and you're thinking, wow, that's great. I very much enjoyed Harry Potter fan fiction when I was young. I'd love to read this book. I would say, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, when you said that you were reading it, I will say, because I, I have heard of this book before, and it has long been on my TBR, and when you said you were reading it, I was like, huh? <laughs> very much not your typical book that you would pick
0: up. Well, you say this, but I love a fantasy book hmm I don't mind sex in books I know that some people do and that's entirely fair I don't mind it and the book was described in some of the pull quotes on the cover as having great world building which I really appreciate in a fantasy that's fair I guess
1: I the way that the book has been said to me is more along the lines of okay you you know have read a fan fiction in your day this is
0: for you and it's very like book talky. Which famously I ha- I didn't read much fan fiction, yeah. so I guess that's why you were surprised yeah. that I had read it.
1: I guess it just felt
0: a little less, I would say, sophisticated than <laughs> your typical reads. But I do like to read widely. You do. And I did I was craving a fantasy novel, and this one is popular, has been widely recommended, so I decided to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And it is good. I, I, I did enjoy it. I don't know if I'm going to read the rest of the series. That's fair. I think that one thing that kept coming up for me is that every time I would read a sex scene, it was so good that I had, in terms of the writing, in terms of the tension that was being built, that it seemed to me that the author was having a great time mm-hmm. writing this scene, was really enjoying setting it up, following it through, And I was enjoying it because I could feel that enjoyment. I did not feel that in the other parts of the book necessarily. There were scenes where I really felt like the author was just thinking, I need a scene to connect to the next scene. And Mm -hmm. I just need to get them from one place to another. That felt, because I could feel that the author seemed to be not that interested, it felt like a drag to me. I thought, well, this scene could have been entirely cut. There were, I thought, some pacing issues at the start. It took a really long time for the plot to get going. A weird thing was that the characters were in the same location for a really long time and not a lot was happening. And I guess they were developing their own personal romantic relationship, but it seemed like the mystery plot was was really thin. And then it kind of got rushed right at the end. Right. Where we had a lot of action in the last 25% of the book, but because the mystery hadn't seemed that complex it didn't even seem like the last 25 percent even had that much in it and some of it was held back because the author needed more plot for book two and so not everything was resolved and I understand that but it just felt like that part of it was a little bit thin and meanwhile the author was relishing the um interpersonal dynamic between Robin and Edwin and that just wasn't the majority of the book. I think if it had been then it could have been a great book if, if you know the magic part had been backgrounded a little bit more intentionally but I think the author really wanted to have their book be a proper fantasy book with a fully built out world. There's a very particular magic system that they obviously thought about But it just seemed at some points like they were a little bit bored with it. And then I got a little bit bored with it. And it is a long book. It's like 400 plus pages. So it's not nothing. So that's my feeling. Unfortunately, I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought that I would. But I do still think it was really fun. And I did very much enjoy... I did very much feel like the two male leads were my friends by the end of it. I felt very fond towards them. I thought that because the author had put so much thought and care into developing these characters, I felt very fondly towards them, mm-hmm. as opposed to the rest of the characters who didn't feel as sketched out. So that's my thought. As you were talking, I was furiously Googling because I was trying to determine if
1: this was one of the very popular books right now that actually started as fan fiction
0: has that's just republished.
1: I didn't find evidence, so...
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a very... Ob- I don't think... I'm sure... I mean, I don't know, but I'm sure the author wouldn't be offended by the comparison. It seems very evident. Like, the character of Edwin even is physically described as kind of a Draco Malfoy type. Like, very mm-hmm. thin, pointy face, blonde. <laughs> His personality doesn't match that of, of Malfoy's, but, like he looks like Malfoy, and that's fine, you know. Um, There's a lot of original material in the book. It certainly doesn't feel like a ripoff, and the magic system is interesting, and it also addresses male homosexuality at the turn of the 20th century in England, which I thought was interesting. So there's definitely a lot of original stuff going on there. I don't mean to knock it by saying that it feels like fan fiction. I just think the author knew who their demographic was, and they were delivering to them.
1: Yeah, I think there is. I mean, this is something that has kind of like probably been very interesting for me because a lot of the books that I read sit in this like new adult genre, which I would say. I guess I would say the reason that it was surprising to me that you picked up this book was because it sits very much in that like new new adult genre. Like I consider, I would consider it first and foremost that then a fantasy book. Right. Even though it is a fantasy book, but I think it just sits with among those kind of stories. And in the way that it's been recommended to me. And a lot of those, you can tell those are authors that spent their teen years writing and posting fan fiction. And some of them, you know, famously, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston was a fan fiction. And of what? The social network. What? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Um, um, Mark Zuckerberg
0: and whatever that other guy yeah, is. Yeah, that's what that story started as. If you had given me a hundred <laughs> guesses, I
1: never would have guessed the social network.
0: Yeah. I'm shocked.
1: Yeah. And so it started as that. Obviously, was rewritten, and it is a very different story than what it once was, but... I love that. Yeah, that's kind of where it started. And there, are, they escape me now, but I know that there's more that I recall. But there are a lot of authors, I think, right now who... I would say a lot of their like writing training, almost, was writing in this style which is like very easy to digest and I want to say like almost unpretentious but like that's not true like just for fun I guess like they're not it's it's being written to be read obviously but it's being written to, for enjoyment more so well not that any not all writing is being written for enjoyment but just to like interact with the thing they already love so there's like almost less pressure on what you're writing because you're not having to like develop a whole world so you get to like, you, you know you're kind of being handed a portion of the story that you're writing so you're not really you can really immerse yourself into these scenes these other scenes and like get really into other aspects of what you're writing and I think that comes across
0: you have a jumping off point yeah well I think it's interesting that you say immerse yourself in a world because um I don't think that's exactly what you said but yeah <laughs> I think that that's interesting because these books even if they start off as fan fiction, by the end of it, they're not fan fiction. They're they original work. Mm-hmm. And so, what is actually left of fan fiction? Because I do think you're right. You can tell that some of these books potentially start off as fan fiction, or at least were inspired by fan fiction, but they don't take place in previously established worlds. So worlds. So what is it? And I think that fan fiction online in our time growing up was posted on websites where there were tagging systems for types of stories Mm -hmm. and those stories included like you alluded enemies to lovers there were certain tropes that were popular within fan fiction and that existed no matter what world you were reading fan fiction in Mm -hmm. so you could read you know an enemies to lovers or a hurt comfort story in the star wars universe or in the harry potter universe or probably in the bionicle universe if you really wanted to <laughs> um but these tropes persisted and i think that is what is very evident in these books it's all those tropes yeah it's almost like genre fiction on steroids like it's
1: not just that you're reading genre fiction that is like fantasy fiction yep. it's like Okay, yeah, it's fantasy, but also it's enemies to lovers fantasy, and or you know it's uh like soulmate story, or you know what I mean? Like there are yeah. all of these tagging systems that you know, it's like a taxonomy of yeah, jerks. exactly. And I mean, even in most book communities like Book Talk, BookTube, Book Instagram, Book I
0: think Twitter you have a Booker Booker. <laughs> I don't think Book Twitter is a thing. They're too sad over there. <laughs> You're right. No, it is. I've seen many Book Twitters. Oh, is it okay? Yeah. But anyway, regardless, this
1: is like kind of the terminology that people are using to recommend books like God help you if you're trying to find a book recommendation list and it, you don't include, or at least on my circle of the internet, I'm sure you're seeing more sophisticated and intelligent, not uh, intelligent, not intellig-
0: just different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, different book recommendation lists. But like if you're on my circles of the internet, God help you if you're trying to find book recommendations and you're not using these little tropes. I think these authors really are leaning into that. And it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation, like which came
0: first, the authors writing it or the o- audience of readers demanding it? Well, for sure. And I will say that I do think that, you know, you said that this um, is like genre fiction on steroids. I think a lot of these tropes are rooted in harlequin romances, mm-hmm. in, in genre fiction that has coexisted with fan fiction for a long time, and certainly that has preceded fan fiction on the internet. So, you know, there is a back and forth where genre fiction has influenced fan fiction and now fan fiction is influencing genre fiction again um, I just wanted to add uh, so we don't know if A Marvelous Light uh, by Fran Marsk was fan fiction but I did read the acknowledgements mm-hmm. and I'll just read what the author had to say right at the end of her acknowledgements so she uh, finishes by saying I owe thanks to everyone who watched me learn to write, live in Technicolor on the internet, and whose comments and fellowship kept me going through the long years while I built my toolkit. Fandom, this one's for you. Keep talking about the things that interest you. Don't let anyone teach you otherwise. So I think that you can read that and, and understand that this book is an homage to fanfiction, even mm-hmm. if it didn't start as Harry Potter fan fiction, which it very well may have. Um, it certainly is... Responding very fondly to the types of fan fiction that this author may have grown up reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think that's great. I, I don't have any issue with fan fiction. I think it's a wonderful uh, way to write. I just think in this book, maybe there were some pacing kinks to sort out, uh, no pun intended, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh. some pacing issues to sort out, some plotting issues to sort out. Um, I think that uh, the world could have been a bit more dynamic, maybe a few more settings, locations, um, a little bit more action, and maybe that happens in the subsequent books. I'm not sure. So definitely do give it a try if that's something you're interested in. You might, uh, it might agree with you more than it did with me. Next for me was
1: uh, Wonderland by, I've looked up how to pronounce this, so I sure hope I'm getting it right, but it is of Occult Wonderland by Zoya Stage. And it is a nature horror novel. It was very eerie, very creepy, very atmospheric. So the plot basically follows a family that has for most of their li- most of their time together as a family of four lived in New York City. The mother of the family is a ballerina that has since retired. The father has been kind of a stay-at-home dad in between jobs uh working odd jobs here and there to help support with money but the mother was a well-paid ballerina and he has since found his muse and he is kind of a always trying different hobbies always trying different things to find the one thing that he loves and the things that he, the thing that he has found that he loves is painting and he found that through the muse of a giant tree outside of a cabin in the woods that they go to see that is in upstate New York, and that cabin is where the family relocates from New York City. And the family has two children, uh, a three-year-old named Tico, and a nine-year-old, I believe, named Eleanor Queen. And because it's a horror, supernatural horror, as you can imagine, Pretty much as soon as they get there things start going awry hallucinations freak weather events they're moving to the middle of upstate wood rural new york in winter so freak snowstorms they can't reach the road they get snowed in it's very creepy very eerie very, very atmosphere very atmospheric i really felt like i was like transported into this cabin while i was reading it the author did an amazing job at really setting that tone and that atmosphere in the writing some really horrific things happened, so if you are interested in it, just brace yourself. There's some things that are hard to stomach
0: and hard to read. Any specific trigger warnings if people like horror, but they might not want to read about certain things? Uh, I would say, I don't want to give the plot too
1: much away, but and to say what it is, it really does give the plot away. But I guess like a, a major death within the family does happen in the novel, and, and... it is hard to read. Mm. I will say, um, the nature of the death, how it happens, and also the grief that happens after
0: that is really difficult to read as well. Is it more of a gory horror novel or more of a suspenseful thrillery horror novel? More of a suspenseful thrillery novel, yeah. Definitely not gore,
1: like, it, there is a bit of a gore situation in the that specific death, but it really is almost psychological because the characters don't understand what's happening and they don't understand what is going on with the tree the tree is the muse but also the tree is kind of the root of no pun intended the root throwing puns left right (laughs) and center this episode (laughs) the root of the problem is this tree and
0: is it a magic tree like is there a magical element
1: yes okay and that's all i'll say until right now where i say spoilers if you don't want to hear
0: spoilers about this book Fast forward probably the next 30 seconds or so. Fair enough. Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to force you into spoiler territory, but no. I just wanted to get the sense of what kind of a horror this was. Is it like a the person is insane and they're imagining this tree, or the tree is straight up magic?
1: Well, it's a very interesting, I think, approach to this, because so this is where the spoilers start. Fast forward if you don't want to hear it. But, so essentially what happens is this tree, in the plot of land where this cabin is, Hundreds of years ago, there was a healing lodge that was created for, like, the local town. And women were sent there who had tuberculosis. And one of the women who was, like, a she was, a, she was a teen, I guess. So one of the girls that was there was close to death. And she didn't want to die. And she was pagan, I believe. And so she did some sort of ritual near this tree because she didn't want her life to end. And so she transferred her life into said tree. Interesting. And the tree is, like, 500 years old at this point, And the tree has started to die. And this spirit inside of this tree doesn't want to die. And it can't really understand. It's lost the understanding and awareness the spirit has that it was a human at one point. It doesn't understand what's happening. It just knows that it needs to continue on its life. And the daughter and the father in this family are particularly sensitive to the spirit. And so first it goes to the father and the father thinks he's going insane. He doesn't understand why he keeps seeing this tree. He keeps painting these like increasingly weird landscape paintings of the forest where inside each tree is like body parts Ooh. um or like bones so it gets kind of eerie at that point and the daughter is also very sensitive and is more in tune like she can more understand what's happening and the graphic death which is horrifying i literally had to put the book down walk away from it because it was like uh, i just couldn't oh uh, it made me so emotional but um the mother has hallucinations mm-hmm. And because they're in rural woods, just in case they have animals that are around, they have a shotgun. And the mother and the father basically decide they are going to dig the car out and they're just going to leave. Like, no matter what happens, they're just going to get out and they're going to leave. And she looks up and she sees a bear outside near where her husband is shoveling. And so obviously she freaks out and she picks up the shotgun to go protect her husband and she shoots And her children start crying, and she realizes she did not shoot a bear. She shot her husband. And immediately, she's, like, overcome with grief and guilt. And, like, how do you live with that? And that's the point where I had to put the book down and walk away. So I was like, I, how do you move on with that? You can't. Like, I don't know what I would do. So she was
0: hallucinating a bear. Yeah. There
1: was no bear. There was no bear. It was her husband the whole time. Hate that. Yeah. It was awful. And then anyway, in the end, the tree spirit will not let them leave the property. Like, every time they try, at one point they try... And the road turns to like an icy river, like, and there's no road anymore. There's no way for them to get out. And then they eventually have to, because the spirit wants to take the daughter, essentially, it wants to transfer its consciousness, its spirit into the daughter. And the idea is, you know, your daughter will still be there, but we'll just be together in her body. And eventually she gives in. They let, the mother lets the spirit take her daughter after putting up quite a fight. And it ends kind of in an ominous way, so which I thought was really interesting. I really thought that they were going to, like, find their way out of it. So that's typically how these books end. Like, yeah. there's usually a way to defeat the big bad. But at this point, they just let the big bad kind of in. And then at the end, the mother is like, well, I know what... Because now the daughter can't leave the property because the spirit can't leave the property. And the daughter's kind of trapped there. And so the mother... It, the one of the last lines of the book is like I know um I know the enemy and it's in my house which is was ominous and an interesting way I think to end the book
0: do you why do you think the author made that choice like was it just a comeback for book two or it didn't
1: give me a book two vibe um I think it was I don't know I mean It made for an interesting story, which is maybe why, like, it was a little bit subversive of what you expect when you get to the end of a book like that. Like, you expect them to find the convenient solution to the problem, and, you know, in that one, it didn't seem like there was. You just had a villain or, like, an evil entity that was, like, not going to allow
0: anything but what they wanted. And is there maybe something about this traditional... Plot type of nature versus man and how we're so used to stories in which man defeats nature and I think that we're all I mean this is a stretch but like maybe there's this idea that we uh, all are right now reckoning with the fact through climate change that nature might
1: Come win back.
0: in win in the end okay. and that you know it hasn't been completely tamed and that it is a force worth reckoning with and in mm-hmm. this book it's a force worth reckoning with that wins.
1: Yeah, and I think probably in there, too, like, there is some discussion. I, you know, I'm not a mother, so I don't know, but um, ultimately what it comes down to is they lose her... She loses her son, and this tree spirit is like, I'm keeping your son alive, but he's only alive as long as the tree is alive, and I'm dying, so unless you let your daughter take me, you can't have your son back, which is essentially the premise. And so I think it's, like, how far is a mother willing to go to save her kids, right? Right. And, like she really is reckoning with this idea that like i have to give up a part of my daughter to keep both of my kids and she doesn't want to but her daughter wants her brother back and it's kind of a back and forth and also this tree begins a bit of a this tree spirit begins a bit of a manipulation that is like you could be my mother like i want you to be my mother and you know i don't know if the author is a mother but I, it
0: really feels like a story about like what a mom would do to protect her family. It sounds like simultaneously the kind of book that could only be written by a mother, but that also would be so hard for a mother to yeah. write. Yeah, um, So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. The next book I read is Wendy's Revenge by Walter Scott. So this is going to be a little bit of a key change, which I think at this point we can just expect in this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of the books that we read have any obvious connection to one another, and they're also really different Mm -hmm. um between you and i um but if the last discussion brought you down a little bit don't worry because this is a funny one wendy's (laughs) revenge is a graphic novel by a canadian graphic novelist cartoonist called walter scott but it is the sequel to a graphic novel called wendy which i have not read but i've read the third book in the series called wendy master of art and it is essentially a series that follows Wendy who is a Canadian visual artist and basically is just a string of funny stories about her she is a partier she has certainly a drinking problem and in Wendy's Revenge she goes from Vancouver where she's trying to make it as an artist showing her work in galleries to then going to LA and having some misfortunes there with the art scene there. So it's a funny irreverent look at the primarily Canadian but also American art scene and also at just being a 20 year old trying to make it as an artist now. I think the fact that it's contemporary is a large part of it because there are a lot of references to not overt references but sort of implied references to social media and the way that Wendy is always on her phone and hooking up with random people from tinder and so um it does feel very contemporary um the I love this series I'm definitely going to read Wendy I think that one of the best things about it is the drawing style which is so funny in itself the writing is very funny. Walter Scott is a great writer, um, but he his drawing style is hilarious. Like for example, I'll show you Faith, but you're not gonna be nobody else gonna be able to tell. But she meets when she goes to LA. She meets up with this peer of hers, another artist called Paloma, who she doesn't like. And Paloma is drawn to look <laughs> kind of like a serpent. Um, she has this little snake tongue and these little snake eyes. Um And Wendy does not like her at all. Paloma is very mean to her. And, you know, Wendy goes to the spa and she's very angry and she decides Mm -hmm. that she's going to go and confront Paloma. But when she comes back, she realizes that Paloma has a migraine and she feels badly for her. And in that moment, when you see Paloma in her moment of vulnerability, she stops being drawn like a snake. And she starts to be drawn in this, like, very sad (laughs) way where you feel bad for her and she starts to look more like a girl and I just think that that's so funny and it's also like a very sketchy drawing style that looks like the author just dashed it off but actually I think it probably took a lot of work to develop a drawing style like this that can convey so much emotion through Relatively few lines and also in black and white. So it's really really excellent. I would really recommend it It doesn't follow a super linear plot So I don't think I can like go through step by step and give a summary But I'll talk a little bit about the author. I just pulled up this CBC article. So Walter Scott is a Kanawake-born artist who lives in Toronto and he Uh, has some parallel experiences with Wendy so he also did a Master of Art program at a Canadian university. Um, I think he I think it's the University of Guelph and so some of the misadventures of Wendy were inspired by him but some of it is invented. The particular feature of Wendy's Revenge that I enjoyed that was not in Wendy Master of Art is there are two sections that are printed on different colored pages one of them follows wendy's friend winona who is indigenous and she goes back to visit her family on her family's reservation where they live and part of it is written in Oh, it's in Mohawk. So uh, part of the uh, story where Winona is going back to the reservation she's talking to her family is actually written in Mohawk with Mohawk lettering and then there's also a portion where Wendy goes to Japan I believe and that is all also written in Japanese right to left and Walter Scott employed uh, Tamura Masamichi to do the lettering and translation for the Japanese part and Aquirateca Martin to do the Mohawk translation for Winona's part. I thought that was a really cool feature, especially in a graphic novel where I find that I read them so quickly if I'm enjoying them and it really stresses me out because I think about how much work went into this novel and I'm just blowing through it but in the Japanese portion I had to obviously I couldn't read the Japanese part so I had to read the translation on the side and I had to read it from right to left which really slowed down my reading because it's not what I'm used to uh, you can see there mm, interesting Um. so those were some uh, unique features of Wendy's revenge that I enjoyed but Like I said, I think the entire series is great. I'm looking forward to reading Wendy. I don't know why I read it last book first, second book (laughs) second, and first book first. I should have just read them in order, but it doesn't matter. I think whichever one you pick up is great. And the final funny thing that I wanted to mention about this book is that one of Wendy's sometime occasional friends that shows up is Screamo who is literally <laughs> he has like this the, the face, scream, the, face. The, the face of the scream but he's like a punk gay dude um <laughs> who just like has irresponsible sex and like waffles around town and also has a drinking problem i kind of think of him as like wendy's male alter ego Mm -hmm. potentially walter scott's alter ego i'm not sure um but it is very funny because his name is screamo in the book so people will just text him be like hey screamo you want to go to the bar (laughs) it's very absurd and the book will just cut from wendy's story to give you a brief interlude about screamo and the only connection will be that he's like texting her about his tinder date or whatever and then just go back to Wendy so it's just like a funny little intermission and you'd think that it would pull you away from the story but it doesn't it's just so funny um so anyway I can't sing the praises enough of of this series I think that it's really funny I often laughed out loud when I was reading this and um I think it's cool that it's in three languages yeah so that's Wendy's Revenge by Walter Scott. Very nice. And I won't tell you what the revenge is. You'll have to read it to find out. <gasps> a
1: cliffhanger. Indeed. Wow. Really up in the sails. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Doing my best. Okay. So I guess I have two books left. All right. Well, give them to me. All right. So the next book I read was Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake. Keeping the Tone Light and Fun. Keeping the Tone Light and Fun. This was my first romance book of the year. Nice. Um, Which I love a good... Just straightforward romance book. I think they're so fun and sweet
0: in the the spring. Yeah. After a winter of horror books.
1: Yeah. Um. I first saw this book because someone that I follow got an like advanced reader copy of this book, and they posted a review and they posted a glowing review, so immediately I promptly pre-ordered it. So I read it when it came out. I devoured this thing in two days. It was really good. So the premise of the book is it follows Delilah Green as she goes back to her very, very small town to photograph her kind of estranged stepsister's wedding. And she it's like a two-week wedding because they're rich. So she is contracted for a lot of money to photograph essentially two weeks' worth of wedding activities. And all along the way, she falls in love for one of the maid of honors. There's like two maid of honors. Ma- Maids, Maid's of, mom, of honor.
0: Like attorneys general.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is a single mom and one of the best friends of the bride. Hold the phone.
0: Yeah. Is this a gay book? This is a gay book. Oh! Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Very crucial. This is a gay, woman loving women romance. It sure is. Please proceed.
1: And... It's just so cute. Very fun. They, at one point, go camping, which is a little weird. There's some weird things with a single mom that I'm like, what are you doing? Like, at one point... Yeah, do you want to get into that? Yeah. Like, the premise of the love interest is she... Her name is... Claire. So it's Delilah and Claire. The love interest Claire is a single mom. She got pregnant when she was 19. She now has a 12-year-old daughter. And her... The father of the child is kind of on and off in the picture sometimes he is and then he freaks out and he's like I can't have a kid and then he leaves and she's like okay now I got this broken hearted kid on my hands and now when the book starts he's back he's living in the town he's got an apartment he's really trying to be a dad to this kid and so another layer of the story is Claire is trying to be a co-parent but she just like shows up at his apartment when it's time that he is with the kid to like make sure that she's Gone to bed on time, and they're not goofing around, and she's following the rules. And at one point, he wants to take the daughter camping, and she's like, "Okay, well, she can only go camping if I go, and also three of my closest friends come." Which again is unhinged. So a lot of the time, while I was reading that the book, I was like, "What are you doing?" Uh, but that was addressed. There was like a little fight towards. I would say. Two thirds of the way through the book, where he was like, "I was trying to have a camping trip with my daughter. Why are all these people here?" So Um, the author
0: does know that it's weird.
1: Yeah, because throughout the book, while I was reading it, I was like, "What is this author doing? Like, (laughs) this is giving big married parents energy. Like, just do they not know anyone who didn't have married parents? Like, this isn't how you do things. Like, you can't just show up. That's not how custody agreements work." Yeah, but no, they addressed it. They know. Um. So by the end, it was addressed
0: as a plot point
1: yes and they fell in love delilah and claire good for them good for them you know there's some drama as did she photograph in. their wedding she f-
0: well no oh because she's getting married i know but if she photographed their own wedding because she's a wedding photographer at the end but right. then she wouldn't be getting married she well she, she could do a selfie. selfie she could just do selfies <laughs> <laughs> the whole time <laughs> you're right. you're so right but there's
1: drama because obviously the stepsister does not want her estranged uh, weirdo photographer stepsister to date one of her best friends. Delilah lives in New York City, not this tiny small town, etc, etc, etc. Is this a move away from the evil big city to my charming small town? It almost felt that way, Okay, okay, good to know. Yeah, and there's also another layer to it, which is the relationship between the two stepsisters, Delilah, and her sister Astrid. Delilah, her father passed away when she was 10, and then she was left in the care of Astrid's mother, and Astrid and Astrid's mother kind of like was buried in her own grief, didn't really know what to do, and never really liked Delilah that much. And there was this kind of layer to it where you have two young girls who lived in the same house, had the same experience, but walked away with very different understandings of what happened and very different feelings about it. And they had to kind of reconcile those feelings and decide whether they wanted to move forward and have a relationship or stay estranged and... I mean, it's a romance, so I'll let you come to your own conclusions on how you think that
0: went, but... Another gruesome murder. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) And then she... Hit her over the head with a camera and <laughs> then she died. She thought she was a
1: bear. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> uh no. They she went to her little art show that she had it after we went to Delilah's little art show that she had in New York City and then they decided to be sisters again. Nice. Yeah. But it was very good. It was unexpectedly emotional at times, but I would recommend for like a fun light read. Great. Yeah. And what was your last one? my last one was actually a reread i the
0: first reread of the year i think
1: the first reread of the year for either of us yeah i reread a book of poems called swallowtail by brenna Chewy. when did you do this you were not home Also, oh, it's just
0: all in one sitting yeah wow
1: yeah it's a short book it's small the thing that i love about that book i've been a big brenna Chewy fan i believe i'm pronouncing. Her I saw one of her spoken word poems on the internet in like 2015 and I have since watched all available spoken word poems that she has posted on YouTube and I just appreciate how lyrical and the interesting wordplay that she does in her spoken word poems I think the thing about spoken word poems is it's I find it hard to engage with books of poetry done by spoken word poets because they really rely so heavily on Understanding how that poet would say it out loud because that's That's the performance of it. Yeah, it's such it is a performance and Why I think I gravitate back to that one so often is because I can Imagine every time I read a poem even if I've never heard her perform that piece I know exactly how she would say it or I assume exactly how she would say it and I can kind of hear her voice in my head and I really enjoy it the overall themes are anxiety, grief, trauma, so not like light hearted themes but there are some like light-hearted Harry Potter esque poems in there. Hmm. She talks about Harry Potter a couple of times. Um, I would also be grieving if I swallowed a tail. Sorry, That's <laughs> <laughs> based after a butterfly because there, it talks about a butterfly in one of the poems. Maybe that'll be my excerpt that I read.
0: Perfect. I was gonna say, do we want to read an excerpt the same way that we did in the previous episode? Hear a little taste of the poetry. Okay. So the poem is called Swallowtail,
1: and which is this is the eponymous poem. Yes. And if you don't know, as well, a swallowtail is a type of butterfly. And so the poem goes like this. Oh, sorry. Before I go into this. Trigger warning. There's some heavy content in this poem. Is there like a specific trigger warning? It mentions sexual abuse. Not graphically, just in name. Okay. So the poem goes like this. The medical history form reads, Has someone physically, sexually, or emotionally abused you? And a, with a box for yes and a box for no. One, I am mostly fine. Two, I am mostly fine, but... Three... One Thanksgiving, his mom told me the story about how, as a child, he found a butterfly in the yard with half a wing missing. He cupped it in his hands, brought it inside, and held it covered against his stomach for fear it would fly away. They called the animal hospital on the landline and were instructed to carefully clip the healthy wing to match the broken one. Four, a cage of gentle hands is still a cage, and I know this now. Five, I would have climbed in that jar if he'd asked me. I would have torn the good wing off myself. So that's kind of the overall theme of the book.
0: Very nice. Yeah, great poem. And I think that brings us to the end of our reading. It does, so far in 2022. Yeah. We thought that we wouldn't have enough to talk about in this episode because we haven't read as much, which is why we talked about cookbooks at the start. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think uh, this is breaking a record for longest episode so far. No. Once it gets all edited down, it will be fine. I feel like this is going to be an average length episode. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I would like to remind everybody that if you would like to submit your spicy flame and Cheeto hot opinions <laughs> about cookbooks, what feels like reading to you again, keeping in mind that we're not trying to be prescriptive about this, it's just an interesting discussion, please, uh, let us know in a comment at more pages, or you could even leave it in a review in your podcast listening app of choice. And while you're there, why don't you leave us five stars as well? Because we would really appreciate it. Great plug. Thank you for
1: listening. All of the books that we mentioned will be listed in the description with links out to where to buy them if you are interested. And we will see you in two weeks. Follow us on Instagram at More Pages. And wherever you listen to your podcasts, give us a follow. Smash that like button. <laughs> Make sure you turn notifications on, etc. <laughs>
0: Don't confuse <them>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.